Hello. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good. It's a little chilly here in Missouri, but uh, when we first bought this house, we installed this gorgeous fake fireplace in our bedroom where I sit and record, and I absolutely love it. And so it makes me enjoy the chilly weather because I get to turn the fireplace on. And oh. that is awesome. How are you doing? Well, I'm actually doing pretty good. It's finally time to be between semesters, and that helps me to relax quite a bit. But your comments about the fireplace, man, so we live in the country and we actually heat with wood, except this year, because I have not had time to keep up on firewood. And so we've been using just the regular heater, like normal Americans, and I don't love it. And we've been too cheap to turn it up very high. So it's been just cold with nothing to reward us for the cold. And that's a bummer. Mm, that is a bummer. I do not like being cold at all. I associate being cold with being anxious. And mm. so I actually emotionally get anxious when I'm cold. Dang. Well, it's a good thing you live in your house and not mine then, because it's just cold in our house. Yes. Well, and it is nice to live in a house that is actually capable of getting warm, because when I lived in Boston, we did not have one of those. Um, <laughs> it was an uninsulated house in which the heating system did not work properly. And of the 10 years we owned that house, about nine and a half of them, we were working on fixing it. And we finally sold it actually being heatable to the new people. So new people, <laughs> if you ever listen to this, you're welcome. <laughs> you will never know how grateful you <laughs> ought to be. But uh, I'm sure you didn't call just to hear me retroactively rant about my old house. So what's on your mind? No, I actually called to have a rant of my own. Hmm. So Well, rant away. Yeah, so this is a theological conversation into which we have not yet divin, because we're Ooh, going to make that one. a word. <laughs> so I actually want to talk a little bit about, kind of tangentially, the idea of Calvinism versus Arminianism, but I don't want to have just that debate because I think it's tired and aggravating and there's it's has split the church too much and so i don't want to go specifically into that debate but i do want to kind of dance around it a little bit because in my estimation calvinists in particular take a theological stance and work it into the rest of their theology simply because of their Calvinist leanings. And I'll explain that in a second. And I specifically want to have this conversation with you because I don't know a bigger Jonathan Edwards fan than you. You have spent a ton of time reading his material, haven't you? I absolutely love Edwards. Jonathan Edwards has helped me fall in love with God and be awed by God more than any author I have read. Yeah. So I would love 
to stand in the shadow of Jonathan Edwards for this conversation and at least point to his insights to the best of my ability. Though, if you're going to ask me to defend him, I feel like that is a cricket defending a giant, but I will do my best. (laughs) Well, you may be a cricket defending a giant. I may be an ant trying to take down the giant. I agree with Edwards on so many things, and you're absolutely right that Edwards and his protege Piper and, and many of the modern Calvinists do an amazing job of drawing us to the majesty of God and the conception Mm. of God as so far above us, so transcendent, so amazing, that that alone is a wonderful contribution to the church. So I don't want to, in every respect, tear down Edwards or Piper or any other Calvinist-leaning person, but I am questioning a theological issue not a person, a theological issue. And Mm -hmm. so what I'm questioning is it seems to me that every Calvinist seems to indicate that the glory of God is the supreme reality and that God's actions in the world, even down to God's purpose for creating the world, is a result of him seeking his own glory. That is his supreme aim. He has been glorifying himself intra-Trinitarian like. Is that a word? I don't know. He's been been glorifying himself within the Trinity for all of eternity. And he has simply, as our podcast would indicate, put more chairs around the table to magnify his glory and worship him. That seems to be, in the Calvinist estimation, his highest ideal. And I think that is driven primarily by a theodicy question. Theodicy being the issue of why is there evil in the world? And I think a Calvinist is forced into the idea that because God controls everything, because God is sovereign, because God lays out the plans, and God has directed the steps that humans will take, and those steps include the reality of sin, there must be something greater that God was about, and that is his glory. So I want to pause there. That's my working assumption, and I want you to tell me where it falls short. So I think you're making two arguments at the same time, uh, which is always complicated. You are making, number one, a an argument that Calvinists claim that God's driving purpose is his own glory. And second, you are making an argument that Calvinists do this because of their interest in theodicy and their attempt to answer the theodicy question. First of all, am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, those are the claims I am making. Okay. Well, and so I would suggest that I would affirm argument number one. From the Calvinist perspective, God's action in 
both creating and engaging the world is driven by his passion for his glory. I would reject your second argument that their primary reason for affirming number one is that they are dealing with a theodicy question. So Edwards has a work, a a book in which he answers this question. It's called Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. Um, (laughs) Wow, that's uh, ideal. Yeah, so I read this maybe two, maybe three years ago. It was when I lived in Boston because I was listening to it and I was listening to it on my running moments because it was too complicated to listen to in very short segments. So I only listened to it when I ran and I can envision myself running my Boston running route. And so I know it was at least two years ago, but Edwards has an answer to why he thinks this is true and what he means by this. But it is not just, it is an answer that begins with God, not an answer that begins with man, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I primarily, for the sake of this conversation, want to focus on argument number one, because that's the argument I disagree with. I entered this conversation by reading a theodicy by a Calvinist author. And so that is what makes Mm -hmm. me lean toward my argument in number two. I don't mind at all being wrong, really on either score, but if you wouldn't mind, I would love to hear what Edwards would say is the primary reason that God is seeking his own glory. Sure. Now, again, if there are full-blown Reformed thinkers out there, any number of you might do a better job than me in articulating this, but I am someone who is deeply influenced by the Reformed camp, but I wouldn't necessarily place myself fully there in the five-point Calvinist kind of way. So I am doing my best to honor this position, which I am deeply influenced by, but not necessarily entirely there with, though I think I agree with all the things I'm about to say. So Edwards, in writing concerning the end for which God created the world— Uh, which I want to say was his last work. It may have even been left as notes and it had to be compiled after his death. So this is Mm. the maturest Edwards we get. He says there are two main arguments for to him by which he would make the claim. God is creating and sustaining and acting in the world for his own glory. The first argument, and he is emphatic that it is the first argument is a biblical argument. He lists dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures in which God says things like, I am doing this for my glory. So, for example, I happen to have been reading earlier today, I'm reading my way through the the servant part of Isaiah. I happen to be in Isaiah 43 today. And so just earlier today, I read the verse Isaiah 43, 7, and Isaiah quotes God as saying, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 
And so this is one of lots of places, particularly in the prophets, where God says, I did thus and such, in this case, creating people, for my glory. So argument number one is the Bible consistently makes this theme explicit. In more places than anything else, God says, my purpose is my glory. And then the second argument, so that's the scriptural argument. The second argument is a logical argument that Edwards wants to make. And that logical argument, and I'm getting confused if this is from the ends for which man was created or if this is from his essay on ethics. But essentially, if I'm remembering it correctly, he basically says, imagine for a moment the percentage of the mass of the world that you as an individual are. If you could put a number to that, what would you put that number as? What percentage of the mass of the world are you? <laughs> that would be an infinitesimally small number. Right. So yeah, let's let's call it a hundredth of a percent, like or less. Sure. That's the world. Now zoom out. If that's what percentage of the world you are, what percentage of the universe are you? Sure. And then he makes the argument if we do the same thing with all of reality, to compare your existence to the universe is a significantly closer comparison than to compare all of what exists other than God with God himself. God is, in fact, more than 99.9999999% of everything that exists. And therefore, logically, if God is going to be a just God, the thing that needs to concern him the most is himself. That's the first half of the logical argument. The second half of the logical argument is not only should God concern himself with himself most because he is most of everything, but second of all, he is genuinely the best thing that exists. There is nothing he can give his creation that is a better gift than himself. And so he seeks to demonstrate his glory to his creation because as a loving God, he wants to give the best gift he can to his creation, and that is his glory. So his, the argument is, logically, he deserves to be his driving purpose, and he ought to be the, the gift he gives to those he loves because he is the best gift he can give. That okay. is my recollection of all of what Edwards has to say in terms of, let me make the argument. He then goes on to say, okay, what do we mean by glory? But that's not really where we're at right now. Okay. Well, this is really good. Thank you for clarifying all of that. And regardless of whether or not that was you know, logically preceded by the theodicy question or not, is really quite irrelevant. Because it's these two arguments that I actually want to deal with. So let me start with the logical argument, because for my ultimate argument, I think it's the easier one. And then 
I want to come back to the scriptural argument, which I think is the meat and potatoes of where we need to be. So Absolutely. I disagree that God's glory is the highest aim. Now, I absolutely believe he is worthy of all of our glory. He is glorious in every single way. So I don't deny him his glory. I just don't think that that is the motivating force behind creating the world and giving himself to it. I think it's love, but love is such a nebulous term. And I've played with a bunch of different words. You know, I've thought about unity. I've thought about the very technical theological word, perichoresis, which is the intratrinitarian love, the interpenetrating love of the three members of the Trinity. I've thought about faithful love, all of these things. But I think the the word that I'm going to come back to for this conversation is self-giving love. And I think that that is God's actual primary motivation. And the reason I think that, so let me go with the logical argument for a moment. God is, as Edwards would say, 99.9999% of all that is. He is the best thing he could possibly give this world. I don't disagree with either of those things, but neither of those things absolutely require that his glory be the primary motivation. Any characteristic of God could be supplied in that argument. And I'm saying the characteristic is not his glory, but his love. And that because he is the supreme gift that he could give humanity, he is giving of himself, self-giving, self-revelatory love. The intratrinitarian love that he has experienced throughout all of eternity has motivated him to create a world in which there are more beings to love and to be united with. This is the exact same argument that somebody would use with glory. They've just supplied a different characteristic of God as the primary motivator. So in terms of the logical argument, I think, in my estimation, it's equivalent. I think the deciding factor is whether or not scripture supports one or the other. Is that fair to say? Um, yes. So far, I'm with you. Continue on. Okay. So here's my thought, because there are a variety of passages, as you described, where God says that he is zealous for his glory. And so not discounting any of those things, because that is still absolutely true. I just don't know if it bears out in at least my preliminary reading of scripture, by the way, this thought is about a week old, so I have not had time to fully vet it. Part of my vetting process is to have this conversation with you. But at least in my reading of scripture, in the early formation of this thought, I don't know that that bears out. And here's why. If I look at the scripture as a whole and the story of scripture, when we look at the garden narrative, nothing about that references God's glory. Everything is about God and humanity being in relationship, or at least, or humanity, humanity's relationship with God, with one another, and with the earth. And it is God blessing humankind. It is God giving 
the most amazing gifts that he can possibly give, life, health, all of this perfectly created world specifically designed to support human life. It is God giving nothing but goodness to humanity. And the same thing gets played out in every other major part of Scripture. The Abrahamic covenant says nothing about God's glory. It is all about God blessing Abraham and telling him he's going to make him into a great nation. He's going to bless him just because it pleases him to bless him. When God shows up at the burning bush and tells Moses, yes, take off your shoes for the place you're standing on is holy ground. So yes, there's an image of his glory, but it's saying that God had seen the misery of his people and he was going to come and redeem them. He was going to be a blessing to his people. The Ten Commandments require faithfulness to God in community with his people because this is what self-giving love expects, a faithful partner in return. The Davidic covenant, God is going to make David's house great, and he's going to send the Messiah into the world through David. But here's what really seals it for me. Well, and then, I'm sorry, I'm going to continue on to Revelation. We have the, the picture in Revelation of the new heaven and the, and the new earth, where God is being united with his bride, the church. Again, God's self-giving love is the culmination of redemption. So I think the incarnation pictures the same thing. I think Jesus instituted marriage to be a picture of this same thing. Self-giving love is, it seems to be interwoven into every aspect of Scripture, into the greater narrative of Scripture. But for me, it's passages like this in Ephesians 1, 4 through 9. And I want to pull that up and I want to read it because it seems to give the purpose for which God has completed his redemptive acts in the world. So this is the NIV, uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 9. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. It seems that God's purpose is this self-giving, lavish love toward humanity. And I understand I am a small speck in the universe, as would be argued by Edwards. But we also have verses like in Psalm, who is man that you are mindful of him, implying that God is mindful of man despite our infinitesimally small size. I think, at least my reading of the scriptural narrative, seems to indicate God's self-giving love is his primary motivation. Yeah, so uh, the challenge that I have with pitting these two things against each other, like we have to pick one, is that I'm not sure that's how conscious beings actually work. 
if I do the dishes, this is going to be a goofy example. Hopefully this works. I'm just trying to think of an example off the top of my head. If I do the dishes in an evening, is that because I care about order in my house? Or is that because I love my wife and know she thinks that's important? That's not a good question. Because those are not opposing values in me. Those are harmonious values in me. And to parse out which one is the, the real driver in any given moment misunderstands what it means to be a fully orbed being, conscious, willing being. I can have more than one value that drives me. And I, I'm just not sure that... And in every single one of those examples that you just brought up, I mean, if we start in Ephesians, his relational love and his desire for his own glory are both referenced multiple times in Ephesians chapter 1. Which one's the driver? I don't, I don't know that that's a fair question. If we go back to the incarnation, and I, I love this, you know, I love John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Is is the incarnation really about God demonstrating his glory or is it really about him demonstrating his, by the way, you didn't use the word relational. What did you use for love? Self-giving, right? Self-giving. Yeah. You know, and this is even your language to me forces us to acknowledge self-giving love is the glorious love of God, right? It's what is he giving? It's, it's him giving himself. If we were to pick a grid and read the creation and garden stories through the grid of a relationally self-giving, a self-giving, loving God, we could read it absolutely that way as you did moments ago. Or if we wanted to read it as a story of a God who values his own glory higher than anything else, the fact that the paramount element of the creation story is the moment God creates something in his own image certainly could be read that way. But what value, I guess this is my question, what value do we get in distinguishing between these two rather than holding them both together? Because I think for me, when I think about the fact that God is selfless or sacrificial, perhaps a better word, in his love, I am profoundly reminded of his imminence when I am focused on his glory. I am profoundly reminded of his transcendence. And I think living in the tension of those two things has been very helpful to me. Yeah, I don't deny any of that. I think both are extraordinarily true. What I take issue with is the assertion in the Calvinist reading, it is emphatic that everything God does, he does for his glory. And that is his supreme and driving motivation. And pastorally and logically, in terms of how that affects me in my day-to-day living, is it means my one job is to worship him. And though I don't deny that that is part of my job, 
if we reframe the issue, we reframe the, the theological vision to say that God's self-giving love and his desire to be united in love with humanity is his primary mission. Now my primary response is relational. It is intimate. It is connected. And it is not simply just a detached sense of awe and worship that I'm supposed to do from afar as my religious duty. Does that make sense? It does. And that would be, this is where I think Calvinists, the deeply meditative Calvinists, really get a bad rap. Because I don't think either Edwards or Piper, and more Edwards, I've read more of Edwards than I have of Piper, if Edwards were to hear an exposition of the glory of God that was somehow fundamentally a-relational or cold or purely almost scientific or cerebral, he would be deeply offended and profoundly heartbroken if he thought that was what his work resulted in. Mm. I, I think there is a reductionism that can happen in, in certain expressions of Calvinism that I don't find in Edwards. And Edwards is far from perfect. Anybody who reads a biography of Edwards will realize he is not the be-all and end-all of Christian wholeness or discipleship on any level. But it's just that the reason I think he starts with glory and the reason I would lean towards starting with glory is to begin with the glory of God challenges us to understand the love of God in a way that is harmonious with the fear of God. The moments I have fallen in love with God have often been because it was men like Edwards who led me to realize how astoundingly great God is and that the answer to why would God love me, God doesn't love me despite my smallness, but because of his greatness. My smallness is irrelevant. What I appreciate is I'm taking what you're saying as a corrective both to my own position and I would also argue to Edwards's position which is the exclusivism with which one or the other is held is an incomplete picture of scripture and absolutely so to say god's glory is in and of itself the only sole primary driver of what God is doing in the world, I think is too narrow. And it sounds like you agree mm. with that, at least. Absolutely. That, that we have to, it is wrapped up in his love. It's it's wrapped up in a variety of his attributes. And to call out one or the other, especially in the absence of clear textual evidence saying this is why God does all of the things that he does, right? In the well, absence and, and of that- And even more than that, it's it's interwoven textual evidence, right? Um, right. Like the verses in John or the verses in Ephesians, these are beautifully interwoven in a way that is very 
personal. God's personhood comes to the fore for me when I think about this. Yes. Yes. In all of its greatness and all of its self-giving love. Like these Mm. two things, I think you use the word juxtaposed, like these two juxtaposed realities being simultaneously true is such a great tension to live in. And I appreciate Mm. this conversation in that it's helping me just to land there, which I think is an improvement on both positions. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, again, the thing I would push on as well is that the classical theologians often are caricatured and under-nuanced, mm. particularly perhaps the Reformed ones because they've been around a little bit longer, Calvin, Edwards, those kind of folks— my reading of them, and perhaps it's because I'm seeking a charitable reading, but my reading of them is far more nuanced than they're given credit for. Sure. That's the other thing I'm pulling away from this conversation is the need to read more of Edwards. And I will say this, and I hope that our listeners have understood this from the outset, but I do want to clarify it just in case. I don't want to cast aspersion on Calvinists in general or any Calvinist in particular. I also don't want to say that the Armenian view is the only view in the world. In fact, I'm leaning more toward the middle knowledge position, which we don't have time to get into. So I don't know that I would agree theologically with everything that an Armenian says or everything a Calvinist would say, but that's okay because we're talking about the things of God, which are really, really hard to grasp. So I want to be charitable in all of the meanings of that word toward whatever theological position somebody might hold. And if I can pitch a book by an author that I absolutely love, Kyle Strobel wrote a great introduction to Edwards called Formed for the Glory of God. And it is a great introduction to Lewis, excuse me, to Lewis, to Edwards's life (laughs) and his thought. It is a great street level introduction to someone who can be very hard to get into. That's a great tip. Thank you for putting it out there. My pleasure. I, Kyle Strobel, I I don't know who he is uh, other than that. He's a great author, but he has been influential in my life in many, many ways. He's a great author. That's awesome. Well, if I can, I would love to turn this back to the audience and say, we would love to hear from you. This has been a lot of deep waters theologically, but I'd love for you to wade in with us, explore this topic, give us your own thoughts about what you think God is up to in the world and why you think he's up to it. Let's expand the conversation. So you can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, at On the Phone with Josh. Just look us up and we would love to hear your comments on our post. Mm. You know, what else has been on your mind? You know, we're kind of zeroing in on this one thing, but never is there a moment when that's the only thing we're thinking about. What else have you been thinking about this week? Yeah, so I recently wrote a paper on the role of the body in spirituality. And it was driven home in that paper 
partially influenced by some of the things that we talked about with the ordinary and caring for our bodies down to brushing our teeth and all of that. But, you know, our sheer physicality matters. Our bodies matter. And I was Mm. reflecting on that during the Christmas season. That's when I had to write this paper. And I was thinking that not only does Jesus's incarnation affirm bodily existence, but even pre-redemption, right? Even before Jesus had a chance to redeem the human body, if that's the theological stance you want to give, you, you want to take, even before that could even happen, God looked down and sent an angel to visit with Mary, and he affirmed Mary's body as a physical vehicle for accomplishing his mission on earth. He affirmed Mm. that the Messiah could be prenatally housed in Mary's virgin body. That Mm. is an affirmation of the body in a way that I'd never considered before, but it just so happened that I was reading the Annunciation at the same time I was thinking about our bodies and the two worlds collided in a really, really cool way. Hmm. That's amazing. It's so funny that you mentioned that the book that I used throughout Advent that I mentioned weeks and weeks ago, Honest Advent by Scott Erickson, this is one of the things he actually hits on very hard in a number of his entries in that book, talking about what it means for the home of God to be dealing with things like morning sickness and bad breath and all those kinds of things. And for God to grace that with his very vulnerable presence Hmm. in Mary's womb is a powerful, powerful thing. Ah, that's great. Well, what about you? What are you thinking about? Well, I have been listening for quite some time to uh, a series of lectures by Gary Burge on the Gospel of John. Again, I've mentioned this uh, a couple of times that Zondervan has done a series of lectures based on their NIV application commentary. So the, the authors of a variety of different entries in that series have taken their commentary and taught a 6 to 20 hour series of lectures based on their commentary to kind of give you an introduction. And I've been listening to Burge's lectures on the Gospel of John. So my my thought is one of the things that he has struck on numerous times, and it has to do with the Incarnation. And I am taking his thought perhaps a, a step be outside of what he has said, but when we think of the Incarnation— we think in terms of the two natures, the divine nature and the human nature existing in one metaphysical space, for lack of a better word. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And that is a profoundly Greek way, meaning Greek in the first century Greek way, the, the Plato-ish sort of Greek way of thinking about the incarnation. Burge pushes us to think of the incarnation in a very different way. 
he suggests very strongly that John is trying to help his audience understand the incarnation by understanding it as the temple, the temple as the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where both of them are at home, the intersection of those two things. Mm. And that is a much more Jewish way of understanding the incarnation through a very literally concrete metaphor rather than through an analytical exercise of analysis. And I just (laughs) find that fascinating. Yeah, but that sounds like N.T. Wright. You said this is a Jewish way of thinking about it, which I think is true, but it's also a very N.T. Wright way of thinking about it. Well, and, and there is significant overlap there, right? Like one of the questions that Wright is always asking is, are we seeing this properly through the Jewish lens that Jesus as a first century Jew would have seen it? Exactly. Uh, or that the authors as first century Jews would have seen it. And I think this is a good example of a vital theological issue that perhaps we are not seeing Jewishly enough. Yeah, you might be right. All right. Now, speaking of things that we might not be seeing Jewishly enough. um, (laughs) How is that a transition to anything? (laughs) Hey, our Witch Josh question this week was all about a spades tournament. Have you ever thought about a spades tournament from a first century Jewish perspective? I can't say that I have. I also cannot say that I'm about to. (laughs) Perfect transition. You're welcome. Our which Josh question was, which Josh and his wife nearly won a spades tournament during their college years and now, 20 years later, are still bitter that they didn't? (laughs) Yeah, that is me. And allow my bitterness to have full vent for just a moment here. We were playing in this tournament and I think it would have been like three plus hours that we had been playing in this spades tournament and we were kicking butt. We were doing so well and we got to the second to last round. We were playing one other team and then there were two other teams next to us playing. The winner of those would go on to play in the finals. And we had been playing with this team for quite a while and at some pivotal point late in the game, one of us reneged, which is a term in spades for putting down a card when you actually meant to play a different card. And so you try to pick oh, it up. Oh, no. And you're not allowed to do that. And there's like, I can't even remember what the consequence is for reneging. But we had, reneging had happened throughout the course of that game and it had not been called. But at some pivotal point, one of us did this And they suddenly called it on us, which they have every right to do. But it was so unfair, given the fact that this had happened by both teams throughout the whole rest of the game, and it had not been called until this point. And we're very confident we would have beaten the other team and gone on and won the Spades tournament. But instead, we took third place and because we went on to beat the other like loser bracket 
team. And it was so maddening. So maddening. So there you go. There's my spades tournament story. All right. Well, having vented your spleen fully. And uh, not thought Jewishly about it. And not thought Jewishly about spades or spleens. Are you (laughs) on for talking next week? I would love to. Sans any spleen. All right. I'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye.